Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Perceptive Photographer Podcast. This is episode 419 on March 20th. And it was so close to be able to do a 420-420 joke. But anyway, I'll have to let that go. I am your host, Daniel Gregory. And again, this is the Perceptive Photographer Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Hope you are having a wonderful week. Got a few things we're going to cover today because it's Listener Question Week, where I've got a collection of questions that I've been sent over the past several months, just that I've answered through email that I thought might be interesting to toss out into the podcast. But before we get to that, a couple of quick things. Don't forget, if you're looking to improve your printing or get started with printing, there's still just a couple of spots left in my online printing workshop, April 1st through the 8th. Head up to my website, danieljgregory.com, and you can check out that information and register for that workshop there. It's online, three hours each Saturday. And I'll be presenting at the Photoshop Creativity Summit, which is an amazing summit put on by the wonderful Dave Cross and the, and the virtual summit team. This time it's focused on creativity and using Photoshop in much more creative ways than just sort of the basic how-tos. I'm going to be speaking on understanding your voice, vision, signature, and style, and printing, ironically, at the conference. But you can go ahead and head up to my website and check out a link up there to register or on any of my social media profiles. There'll be links to register there as well. Okay, like I said, today is Listener Question Week. I've got five questions. That's a nice round number to approach with, but five questions. One of the first ones was, what is my favorite paper to print on? Since I talk about printing all the time, printing classes, printing workshops that I teach, do I have a favorite paper? And my answer to that is, yes, I do have a favorite paper. I actually have a favorite couple of papers. And for me, though, a lot of getting the image right, getting the actual print right, which is until you've got the print, you don't necessarily have the photograph. Until you've got that finished, completed piece, it really doesn't necessarily say what we want. And part of that is in the paper selection because a glossy paper, a matte paper, have different contrasts. They have different color gamuts. They represent colors and differently. They represent tonal values in black and white differently. And so a lot of selecting the paper is about understanding what you want the experience to be when we look at an experience and read the photograph. To that end though, what I recommend most people do is have a favorite glossy luster paper and a favorite matte paper. I have two papers that I really like in the matte world. I like RAG, Canson's RAG Photographique, and I like Epson's Legacy Fiber. I print on Epson printers. So I use the Legacy Fiber paper, which I think is an absolutely gorgeous, stunning matte paper. And if you are on any one of the Epson printers and have not tried the Legacy Fiber paper, give that a shot. It's a delicate paper, so you got to make sure that you are careful for scuffs and scuff marks, and you'll definitely want to put a varnish on it, which you should be doing anyway. But you want to take careful, but it makes beautiful, beautiful black and white and color photographs. And in the glossy world, I'm a little bit more sort of into the Barita papers and the Platine papers. So whether it's Legacy Platine, Hanamula's Platine, Hanson's Platine, I really like the, the structure and weight of those Platine papers. But again, if you're thinking about a favorite paper, you get a sample pack. I'm like, the word will come to me in a second. Get a sample pack and look at the different papers, not just you know what you kind of imagine them printing on, but how does the paper actually look? How does it reflect light? How does it feel? What's the texture like? How smooth is it? All those components come into play. And if you want some additional help and you haven't signed up for my newsletter, or if you're a part of the newsletter, at the end of every newsletter, every time I send it out, is a little link to download my online printing guide, about an 80 pages, and there's a lot of information about paper in there. Okay, the second question was, do I have any tips to stay motivated? Do I have any ways to stay motivated with photography? And this is one of my favorite questions that I get asked a lot because I think it's sort of a two-edged sword, so to speak. One is there is an 
idea that's sort of buried in that question that we always have to be motivated. And meaning our foot is always on the gas. And if you think about that analogy, if you're on a road trip and you're driving and you never stop, you never run out of gas, you never have to use the bathroom, you never have to sleep. Sure, you might get to your destination faster, but you miss a lot of things on the road and it's a highly uncomfortable drive. We are designed to need rest. We are designed to need a break. We've got to stretch our legs. We've got to get out and get something to drink. We've got to use the bathroom if we're on that road trip. All those components come into play because we can't stay 100% on the activity all the time. And so I think for me, a lot of times rest and downtime is really important. So tips to stay motivated. I think part of understanding who you are as a creator is understanding that you're not always motivated. And that you lean into those periods of rest and recognize that it's sort of like charging your camera battery. You put it on there and if you're completely depleted, your little light's going to have to flash through all four or five of those little charging lights to indicate how charged you are. You need more time to recover. And in that process of recovery, things are happening. Things are working. Your brain's still thinking about photography. And then at that point, when you pick up the camera your battery's charged and you're ready to go out with a lot more energy and a lot more awareness to actually make the photograph that you want. That being said, I also think when it comes time to recognizing that motivation is also something that implies that something is missing, that we're missing a component of our, of our photography, of our creative practice, and that being willing to spend the time, again, some of that downtime to write in a journal, to talk to somebody, to do word associations, to read, to do something, to see if you can figure out what is missing that's keeping you from feeling like you're achieving what you want through your photography. And maybe identifying and dealing with the thing that is blocking your motivation, so to speak, quote unquote, will allow you to feel like you're getting over the top of that hill and able to create again. Because sometimes that block might be something that needs to be dealt with. When it's dealt with, it can then be taken care of and it doesn't have to come up again. But when we're avoiding something, when we're no longer dealing with some specific issue, that can be a detriment. And it might be as simple as you've got a lot of photographs you haven't organized or cataloged or imported that you just need to clean up. Or maybe you're ready to take on a completely new challenge and you haven't figured out how to do that. And so you need to give yourself the freedom to experiment. Or maybe you're trying to make more compelling photographs and you need to spend more time thinking about and writing about and discovering what matters to you to make more compelling photographs. All those things are valid. But again, recognizing that sometimes what's blocking our motivation is more important than the desire to be motivated. It's that identification of that that really matters. Okay, the third question, which is one of my favorite questions, was... I talk about reading the photograph a lot. And if you take one of my classes or workshop, I always refer to reading the photograph. I've talked about it a lot in this podcast. I've dedicated a whole podcast to this. But what is the difference between reading and looking? Which I thought was a really great question because sort of in there is reading, seeing, and looking. And reading and seeing are closer together than reading and looking. Reading is born out of our desire to have a vocabulary to describe our photography. When we read a book, we're looking, at, we're looking at words, we're looking at a grammar, we're looking at a structure for understanding something in text. When we read a photograph, again, we're looking for themes, we're looking for grammar, we're looking for adjectives, nouns, pronouns, we're looking for ways that that photograph is composed and framed 
that describes the experience of the photograph. And reading also is an active process. It's not passive. Looking is passive. We can look at things. You scroll through and look at Instagram all the time. And that's how people say it. I'm going to go, I'm looking at Instagram. I'm looking at things on social media. There's a passive element to that. It doesn't require us to dig deep into the experience of looking at the photograph. The other thing that reading does is it requires a self-awareness. We need to be aware of who we are at the moment of reading the photograph and what we're bringing to that photograph before we start to read. So if you're coming in and you think about what makes me, me, what describes who I am, introverted, extroverted, happy, sad, lover of birds, whatever it is, whatever the adjectives, whatever the concepts are that I describe who I am, a passionate person, a, a quiet person, a thoughtful person, whatever those are, those are elements that I'm going to then bring actively into my understanding of the photograph. The other pieces is where I am today. The things that might affect how I experience a photograph come to that. Am I tired? Am I hungry? Am I happy? Am I celebratory? All those elements come into play. And the reading experience is understanding how all of those components come together to then inform what I'm looking at over time. And the other thing reading does is much like reading a book, unless you're one of those high-powered speed readers, reading takes a little bit of time. A time to come in and experience the photograph, which can take several minutes that we look at and we engage. And so thinking about everything you bring, everything you're seeing and experiencing and pulling those together in an active process rather than a passive process. Okay, the last, uh, not the last, the fourth question was how to deal with a challenging photo. And this goes back to, you know, I get to answer, when I get asked a question like this, it's that sort of nebulous. I get to answer it however I want, which I love. I love those kind of questions because I think probably that was how do I deal with a challenging photo from a processing standpoint? How do I deal with blown out highlights or blah, 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 or tech tips, tips or techniques for, you know, dealing with a difficult photograph, kind of like you'd see on the web or in a YouTube video. But in my world, how do I deal with a challenging photograph? I live with a challenging photograph. This goes back to question number three about reading a photograph. A challenging photograph is one that I have to work with to understand. And so how do I deal with them? I put them up on the screen. I put them up on the wall. I print my own photographs that I find challenging to look at and dig and experience and read multiple times over and over again and see how that interpretation changes, how my language changes, how I am changed by looking at that photograph. Challenging photographs to me are what we're looking for. Photographs that are complex in their relationship with the viewer. Even if it's a minimalist, very simple photograph, it's a complex relationship with the reader of that photograph to hold their experiences and what they bring so that every time they experience that photograph, something new emerges from the table. So to deal with challenging photographs, I love to have challenging photographs. I don't think of it as dealing with them as much as it is getting to live with them and share in their growth and the experience and opportunity they provide. On what was probably the actual answer to that, how do I deal with a challenging photograph? That comes down to practice. One of the things that I try to give myself is time to practice skills, things to learn when I'm working with new versions of Lightroom, Photoshop techniques. Are there just interesting things to try and learn? That's why I love to go to things like the Creativity Summit, the Lightroom Summits. I love to be able to see really good classes, really good instructors, really good presenters, really good photographers talk about interesting things they do with their work. 
and not in the sense of that they're feeding a requirement for you know, a YouTube channel or something like that, where you're like, well, that's really not that interesting a technique. Or here's a really complicated technique that could be done very simply, but I'm just trying to show you a really complicated way to do it. But really interesting ways of dealing with problems are, are to me, one of the great things about giving yourself the freedom to practice that. Don't wait until you're stuck with the challenging photograph to then try to learn that. Always be learning, always be engaging in interesting techniques and concepts and in a more playful way. Because if it's play and it's fun, it's more engaging. Things that are challenging oftentimes invoke the sense of things are difficult. And it doesn't have to be that way. A lot of times things that are challenging, if it's seen more as fun and play, are much more engaging. So that's the other one is when it comes to a challenging photograph, I think about it as playtime rather than work time to try to solve the problem. What are the different ways I can play with this image to see what I can get out of it? The last question was, do I have a most important photograph? And, or what is my most important photograph? And in my own photography, I mean, I've got great photographs from great photographers that I've collected over the years. I've got a Paul Strand gravure that I absolutely adore that hangs in my studio. And I've got the Caponegros and I've got Alex Soth and I've got all sorts of different photographers that I like. Richard Rinaldi, there's different photographers I've got that I really like the work. But in my own image, when I was thinking back, my, one of my most important images is I, my first dog that I had as an adult was, her name was Sydney, Australian Shepherd. And we, it's one of those, I have an amazing relationship with all the animals that are my family members, but she and I had just this really amazing bond. And I was struggling at the time to figure out how to make compelling photographs. And I was strictly at that point trying to be a landscape photographer. I didn't photograph literally anything else. And now I've got portraits, product photography, landscape, still life. So I've got all sorts of different things because I've learned that I'm not trying to be that one thing. I'm not trying to emulate the one photographer at the time that I was being influenced by. And part of that process was my mentor at the time and I were really working on how do you make powerful photographs? How do you make photographs that people connect to? And I was put forth with the question of, can you photograph something that you deeply, completely, unconditionally love? And that's part of my draw to the landscape. That's part of my draw to the environment is I do have a, a, an amazing love for the natural world and how we interact with the natural world. But at the time, I didn't understand that relationship at all. And so this, I have a photograph it's, I took. It was taken on my Mamiya RZ67 film camera back in the day of her in the backyard just sitting in front of a pot of bamboo. But it was one of the first photographs where I felt like I got truly an amazing experience taking the photograph, printing the photograph, and looking at the photograph. And it was, how do I communicate that relationship that she and I have together? And that's always been a really powerful photograph for me and an important photograph because it taught me how to think about photography. But more important than that, it taught me how to feel in my photography, how to let my emotional side of my experience, of my existence, come into the work. Because up until that point, I had been a strictly technical photographer. If I make the technically correct photograph, the correct exposure, the correct tonal placement, the correct color correction, I have a great photograph. And what I was missing was the emotional element of the photograph. And that photograph, that first photograph was the one that I realized that when the emotion is in the photograph, it becomes a much more powerful photograph. And that photograph, to probably anybody else who looks at it, is an okay, nice picture of a dog, black and white photograph of a dog. 
they don't have that relationship. But for me, that photograph became important because it was the first time I felt like my emotional weight of my being was in that image. And so to me, when it comes to what's my best photographs and what are my best photographs are the ones where I feel like I have emotionally centered myself in the experience of that photograph. In capture, in processing, in printing, in sharing, in reading, and rereading that photograph. That emotional aspect weighs into those. So those are the five questions for the listeners that have come in over the last couple of months. Hopefully those were somewhat interesting questions for you and some things to think about in how you approach your photography, approach your creative areas of being stuck or unstuck or looking at photographs. I really do appreciate you being a listener of the podcast. That really does mean the world to me. Again, if you're wanting to keep up to date on all the podcasts when they're released, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. That'll make sure you get notified when the latest podcasts are out. And next week is surprise week on the podcast. It'd be my, it's my birthday week. It's actually my birthday on Monday when we release the podcast next week. So we'll have some little uh, surprises and uh, updates there. So that'll be happening. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Thanks so much again for listening to the podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Gregory, and I will see you next time.